Well, good morning, family. So great to be here with you all again this morning. We're going to be continuing our series, Who I Am, looking at the character and nature of God and who we should be in response as image bearers of God, what that means for our lives. And it's been really great for me to go through this study personally because God has been convicting me every week. But we're going to be wrapping up our little stint in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7 before moving into more about God next week. So once more, let's read this extremely crucial text in Scripture as, like our mission statement says, as we continue to love God together. In verse 6 it says, And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So thus far we've talked about a lot of great things about God. We've talked about God's compassionate and gracious character. We've talked about God being slow to anger or being long of nostril. We talked about God abounding in love and faithfulness. And now we're getting to the elephant in the room. <laughs> that strange twist in, in verse 7. It begins on a high note by talking about what God's character turns into, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. The word for wickedness, it basically, in Hebrew, it just means immoral behavior. The word for rebellion, it basically is a breaking of a legal code of conduct. And the word for sin is, simply put, missing the mark. So all the different ways that we fail. And I think the reason there are three different words for different kinds of sin in this is to show that God is one who forgives all kinds of sin. Even that one sin that you're like, there's no way God's going to forgive me for this. Or the sin you keep repeating, there's no way God's going to forgive me for this. God will. And God does forgive you for all of your sins. It doesn't matter what it is. And to quote the great philosophers... The Backstreet Boys. <laughs> God is one who says, I don't care who you are, where you're from, what you did, as long as you love me. So now you're going to have that song stuck in your head for those of you who grew up uh, in the 80s or 90s or whatever, that you just love the Backstreet Boys. There you go. Maybe I've ruined that song forever for you. But, um, but as we mentioned before, this kind of love and forgiveness that we see from God it oftentimes feels too good to be true. But the thing is, it is true, which makes it even more good. But there's still this last sentence in verse 7, right? Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Whew. What do we do with that? Part of me thought it would be funny if I just gave this to Brant to talk about last week, but uh, I figured I wouldn't make our guest preacher go through that. But this is a really important verse. Crucially important. And I think it's important for us to be a church that talks about hard passages like this and not just gloss over it. Because oftentimes we have that impulse. If something, if a text in scripture doesn't fit with our current theology of God, a lot of times we just ignore it. It can be like what Martin Luther did with the book of James. He all but removed it basically from his Bible because it didn't fit with his theology. But we all do that. 
we all pick and choose bits and pieces of scripture. We keep referring to certain scriptures that talk about God's character and try to avoid, like the plague, some other parts of scripture that talk about God's character. But we really need to be a people that takes all of it, that looks at all of it to inform our theology. We can't ignore this. But hearing this verse, it might give you a little bit of an unsettling feeling, right? Could you imagine punishing somebody's kids for something their parents did? Like, that feels harsh, doesn't it? Well, the good news is, this verse does not mean how it sounds. And this is a great uh, example as to why you can't take everything in your English translations at face value. Because there's a little bit more behind this. In my opinion, the ESV translates this a little bit better. It says, Yet he will not clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So we're really going to break down this verse here. The first word, yet, this means at the same time. So God is saying, yes, I am compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and all of those things I just said. At the same time, or just to clarify, I don't let the guilty off the hook. I don't let people get away with anything. And some of us might hear that and wince a little bit. Because it's like, ooh, I know the stuff I did. I'm not getting let off the hook for that. But some people might hear that and rejoice. For those who have been oppressed or marginalized or something really bad happened to them in their life, they find comfort in God's justice. That people aren't going to get off without consequence. The reason that God is this way is that God is just. He cares deeply about righteousness. And he hates evil. He hates injustice and sin. For those who continue to practice injustice and evil, God does not tolerate it. And as much as our culture might try to equate love and tolerance, tolerance can oftentimes be an enemy of love. I'm all for classical tolerance, which basically is saying, hey, we can disagree with one another and still love each other and, you know, not kill each other. But a tolerance that looks more like apathy is against love. God does not look at Hitler and say, ah, oh, he was just living his truth. No, he looks at that with anger and frustration and acts against it. So when we talk about God being one who's slow to anger, he really is slow to anger. He's patient. But there comes a point where God says enough is enough. So for some of you today, you may need to hear that God is slow to anger. That he is patient with you. He is gracious. He really is. But some of you today may need to hear that God is slow to anger. That he has anger. That he doesn't like it whenever we keep choosing sin over and over and over again. Oftentimes, I've also heard Christians say that God has this loving side, and then he has this just, angry, wrathful side. And I really don't like that distinction. Because I think it's a misunderstanding of God's attributes. Foundationally, God is love. Period. Everything that God does is an extension of love. It's not a separate thing 
God's wrath and justice is not apart from his, his love. It flows from his love. It is because God is love that God is just. And that's why he gets angry at injustice. And he gets angry at the evil we put into the world because he knows how much it's going to harm us. And he, he doesn't want to see us hurting our own lives and the lives of other people. Think about it like a parent who their kid is about to run into the street and they're yelling at them to not run in the streets because they don't want to see their kid in danger. It's the same sort of righteous anger that God has. And anger is a fitting response to injustice. Jesus demonstrates that very clearly. I know we don't have a lot of flannel graphs and VBS skits that show Jesus holding a whip. But there is this story in all four Gospels where Jesus is overturning the tables of money changers and releasing all the animals because he is angry at the unjust money scheme that's profiting off the worship of God. A lot of times Jesus gets painted as this guy who's all about tolerance and love. Jesus has anger too. He is a righteous anger. And I like the way that John Stott describes God's anger. It's his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, and steadfast antagonism to evil and all its forms and manifestations. Steadfast antagonism. I, I like that language. God is completely and unequivocal, unequivocally against all forms of evil. He hates it. And the thing is, we want a God like that. We want a God that cares about justice. It is because God is like this that we can look forward to a day where we don't have to worry about another murder anymore. We don't have to worry about people discriminating against other people based on the color of their skin anymore. We don't have to worry about another woman getting trafficked anymore. It's because God is just that we don't have to worry about that. We want a God of justice. How many of you want to see a world without all of that stuff, right? It's because God is just that we can look forward to that day. We need a God who is just. And I think most of us would be on board to an extent with God not letting evil off the hook, right? But the more troublesome part of this verse is what comes next. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Again, like I said, how this reads is not really what it's meaning. And I'll give you some examples. So Deuteronomy 24, verse 16. This is, in this is a code of conduct for Israelites, basically. And in verse 16, it says, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. So here we see explicitly that the punishment for individuals comes from their own sin. Super encouraging passage, right? Uh, but it's showing that it's not from the parent or the child that the guilt is put on. It's, it's from our own personal sin. Jeremiah 32, verse 18, it says, You show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. So this is sort of demonstrating that the punishment, or another way to put it, the consequence of the parents' sin affects their kids. And we know this to be true, don't we? If our parents demonstrated consistent rage, that affects us. If our parents didn't demonstrate a very faithful marriage, that affects us. If our parents were absent or not very supportive, that affects us. 
And many of our deepest wounds and deepest weaknesses have probably been inherited from our parents. And they probably inherited it from their parents. And so on and so on. Keeps going down the line. And even if you had good parents, they're still going to wound you in some ways. As much as maybe you as a parent are trying not to pass on the stuff that you experienced as a kid, you're still going to wound your children in some ways. We all have to deal with the consequences of the sins who came before us. And we see that this is true in the story of uh, in Numbers 14, where God, he is furious with Israel. And he says he's going to strike us all down, uh, strike Israel down with a plague. And then Moses intercedes. He prays and he asks God not to do this. If you read in verse 17, he actually quotes Exodus 34 back at God. He says, now may the Lord, Lord's strength be displayed just as you declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So Moses pleads with God to be God. Continue to be this person that you revealed yourself to me. Just one more time, please forgive these people. And think about this for a second, all right? Remove, remove your systematic theology for one second and just look at this simple text for a second. What does this say about the power of prayer? That God says he is going to do something. Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and God doesn't do the said thing he was going to do. God relented. God responded to the prayer of Moses. How much more power does that give our prayer? That's why we have family prayer time, because we believe stuff changes when we pray. But in verse 20, it says, Yahweh replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, as surely as the glory of Yahweh fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So as we see right here, God forgives all those grumbling, disobedient Israelites. They're the consequence of their sins in a spiritual sense is behind them. But they still have the consequence of never actually being able to see the promised land. Their sins still have this earthly consequence tied to it. And then you see there's, the land is ultimately given to their children. But as we'll continue reading in verse 31, the actions of the parents still affected the kids. So in verse 31 it says, As for your children... That you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. Their children had to suffer with their parents for 40 years in the wilderness. They had to endure all that stuff, not because of their own sin, but because of their parents. So we see our sin has consequences, even for other people, even our kids, that we may not want it to extend to them, but it does. So we're going to try to put all this together. 
Will God forgive you if you sin? Absolutely. A hundred percent. And we see in the parable of the vineyard workers that even at the final hour, if you live your whole life away from God and turn to him in the last moment, will God forgive you? Yes. That's how merciful he is. But understand this. Living a life of sin will make you miss out on the good that God has for your life. There are serious consequences to sin. If you live your life sleeping around with other people, will God be able to forgive that sin, redeem you, and release you from all of the shame? A hundred percent. A hundred times over, he will. But will there still be consequences from it? Could it be possible that at some point you're going to develop medical problems or have an unwanted pregnancy? Or will that harm future intimacy with a spouse? It's possible. There are consequences to our sin. If you live your life gossiping about other people, will God be able to forgive you and redeem you? A hundred percent. No doubt. But will people slowly deteriorate trust with you and feel like you're not a safe place anymore for them to share whatever's going on in their life because they're afraid you're going to say that same stuff behind their backs? There are consequences to our sin and it can rob us of the blessing that is a life that is wrapped up in God's own heart. And these consequences can sometimes be irreversible. God is one who takes sin seriously because it takes a serious toll on the world and our future generations. But in spite of God's justice and taking sin seriously, I want to make something abundantly, abundantly clear about God's heart. So in, in this text where it says, that God is one who uh, punishes to the third and fourth, four, third and fourth generation. The word generation actually is not in the Hebrew text. And it's meant to be read in tandem with what comes before it, one who shows mercy and love to thousands. So the idea is that though God only punishes to the third and fourth, or third and fourth generation, God is one who shows forgiveness to thousands and thousands. So if you can think of it of like a weight or a scale, God, God's heart is weighted far more to mercy and forgiveness, overwhelmingly so, than punishment of the guilty. That's the God we serve. Yes, he cares about justice, but at the same time, he delights in showing mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. And also, to prove that God is one who is truly this forgiving and merciful, even though I said living a life of sin can rob you of the good that God has for you, read this in Joel 2. Even now, declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. So even though sin oftentimes has terrible consequences in our life, our God is so merciful and so forgiving that he may even replace what should have been a negative consequence with a good blessing. That's our God. So how does God's handling of evil teach us to be? The first is that we should be people who are angry at injustice. And this is true of God, it should be true for us. Uncontrolled, prideful anger, that is a sin. And a lot of people 
have done a lot of terrible things in that kind of anger. But an anger that stems from justice and ultimately that stems from love, that is godly. That is at the heart of God. And if we hear about all the stuff that happens in our world, primarily the dark stuff that happens in our world, and we don't get angry at it from time to time, we probably don't love very well. One of the biggest enemies of love is apathy. Whenever we see the evil that's happening in our world, and oftentimes right here in our neighborhood, and care nothing about it, and do nothing about it, that's sin. We're not loving our neighbor very well. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we have scales over our eyes that prevents us from seeing the injustice that's happening to other people. Oh, but boy, whenever it's happening to us, we say something about it. We do something about it. It kind of gives a new meaning to the scales of justice, right? That we are intentionally blind to the injustice of other people. But there's some serious injustice right now happening in our world and in our neighborhoods. If stories about kids who grow up in poverty, that don't have access to the same resources that a lot of us do, and don't even have that great of a chance to make it in life, if that doesn't break your heart, we might need to do some heart work. If stories, for example, like one of my black friends, who he was dating a white woman at the time, and there was a truck that pulled up, and the person driving it rolled down the window and told the woman, why are you with him? You can do better. That doesn't make your blood boil. It should. If parents have to tell their children of color whenever they walk into a store to keep their hands out of their pockets, not put a hood up because they're afraid of what people might assume about them, that should frustrate us. It shouldn't have to be that way. The fact that world hunger even exists. I've heard of several people who have said that we have the resources right now, if people really cared enough, that we could end people dying of starvation if we shared our resources. All of these things should make us angry, a righteous anger, right? We have to be, as a church, a people of justice. It is impossible to pick up the Bible and be a faithful reader of it and not see how clear it is that God's heart is for the poor and marginalized, period. You, you cannot read the Bible faithfully and miss that. We must be a people of injustice, or not injustice, of justice. Woo, do not hear me wrong. We need to be a people of justice, right? The second thing, we need to flee from sin and move towards Jesus. Because sin has deep consequences. It affects the whole cosmos. The whole world is affected by the sin. And we continually contribute to it, and we are affected by the sin of other people, and our sin affects other people. We need to flee from it. It's dangerous. Whenever I was growing up, I had a goal to stop sinning. And how I did it was sheer willpower, or trying to distract myself so I didn't do something stupid. I found out those methods didn't work very well, because repentance is not just turning from something. It's also turning to something, or more particularly, someone. Because whenever we are in pursuit of Jesus, whenever we are pursuing good, we are naturally also not going to be doing bad. 
but we're also going to be doing the stuff we're supposed to be doing, which is leading us to a more fulfilling life. And, it, and on our own, we have absolutely zero hope of conquering any sin, because it is only through the power of Jesus and the Spirit that we can overcome that sin. And the good news is that in this, Jesus gives us freedom. And it's not freedom to do whatever we want. It is freedom to finally be able to choose what is righteous or choose what is good and do so on a consistent basis. And through Jesus, even if you feel hopeless in your sin right now that there is no path forward, you can overcome whatever sin is in your life. Because Jesus, as we say, Jesus makes the darkness tremble. We have that freedom and power. And what this means also is that what's true of your parents does not have to be true of you. The stuff that you have had to deal with because of your parents, you can reverse that. You can break that. I'm going to give you an example that's close to home. My own father. I love my father. He had a terrible upbringing. His father was not affirming to him at all, didn't go to his ball games, created an environment at his house that he was terrified to be there. And he tried to actively avoid being in that home. But through Jesus, through my mother helping him, he vowed to never make his kids go through what he did. By the grace of God, he didn't. He was at every one of my games. He affirmed me constantly. I never had a doubt in my mind that my father loved me. He still does love me, by the way. He reversed the curse in his family. He stopped that generational sin. And through Jesus, you can do the same thing. Parents, the best gift that you can give your kids is that of a good character. That's the thing that's going to help set them up for success more than anything. You're going to wound them, you will. <laughs> and there's grace in that. But it is so important to realize that you can reverse whatever happened to you. And you can be better. You can have a better example for your kids. And the last thing is we need to be people who value mercy over judgment. Yes, we need to be angry at injustice. Absolutely we do, because God was against evil. But the problem is, unlike God, we do not have perfect wisdom. We oftentimes can be wrong about our judgments. We don't know everything. Sometimes we think we do. But we can get angry at evil and seek to end it in ways that actually might be more harmful than helpful. And I think this is why we read things in scripture, such as, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Or Jesus instructs us to turn the other cheek when someone wrongs us. Because we don't have that perfect knowledge. And, and if you look at the model of Jesus, how he overcomes evil is by good. Doing good, repaying evil with kindness. Kindness undeserved. That is the example we see in Jesus. So like our God, whose forgiveness is weighted more heavily than the punishment of the guilty, we also must be this way. 
Oftentimes in life, we want mercy for ourselves, but justice for all the people who are wronging us, right? But if we use that same standard, we would be condemning ourselves. The thing is, God has forgiven us. We are a forgiven people, which means we need to freely forgive others. We can have godly anger, absolutely, but we have to remember who our true enemy is. Our true enemy is evil itself. Our enemy is not of flesh and blood, as Paul talks about. It is evil, principalities and powers, and Satan himself. It is not one another. So whatever we're doing in life, we cannot train our minds to think that our neighbor is actually our enemy. We cannot see our neighbor as a monster. We have to always maintain that everybody here, we have to see them as humans, as image bearers of God, even though they may be unjust or sinful or doing something that is wronging us. We have to remember who the true enemy is, and it's not each other. So let us be a people of loving hatred, a hatred of evil that stems from loving what is good. And let's fight against sin by leaning into the Spirit. And let us not forget who the real enemy is. And please, 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 still love your neighbor in spite of their sin or evil against you. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are a people of injustice, oftentimes. Our heart for those who are experiencing injustice is oftentimes one of apathy, and I pray that you destroy that. I pray that you remove the scales from our eyes and help us to see the world as you see it. Help us to see evil for what it is and help us to actively fight against it in loving ways, not in, in ways of judgment because we don't have the clear picture all the time. Well, really any of the time. And give us your wisdom to make righteous judgments, to give us the insight we need to make decisions, but Lord, more than anything, just convict our hearts. Help us to be people of, of justice, but always let our mercy overshadow that. We thank you so much for Jesus and the example that he has set. One who is one of grace and truth, and help us to live into that as well. We thank you and we praise you for putting an end to all evil, and we look forward that day whenever all things will be made right. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.